Welcome to Unfiltered. Big news show tonight. There's the Roger Stone arrest, a contested election in Venezuela, and I'll be joined by a 2020 Democratic candidate. But first, we start with the shutdown, and here's tonight's headline. Cave, cave, cavey, cave, cave. That's right, the dreaded C word so many Republicans had feared came to pass in the Rose Garden yesterday. President caved after 35 days of a partial government shutdown that proved to be all pain and no gain for Trump and indeed the country. The president, with no cameras present, signed legislation last night funding the government through February 15th, ostensibly giving Congress three weeks to reach an agreement on border security or he'll do it all over again. If we don't get a fair deal from Congress, the government will either shut down on February 15th again or I will use the powers afforded to me under the laws and the Constitution of the United States to address this emergency. The final surrender came as the polls continued to worsen for the president. The economy continued to bear the brunt of the shutdown and perhaps the final straw? TSA, air traffic controllers and the airlines started to show troubling signs of strain. For the latest on how it all went down on Capitol Hill, let's talk to CNN political director David Chalian. He's in Iowa for CNN's live, live town hall with Senator Kamala Harris Monday night. Okay, David, uh, we have new reporting suggesting Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, had had enough and basically told the president, you can't win this. Uh, what else do we know about how this, how this happened? Yeah, that's right, Essie. Uh, some great behind-the-scenes reporting uh, from our colleagues Dana Bash and Jim Acosta and Kevin Liptak uh, that revealed that on Thursday night, uh, Mitch McConnell had two different phone calls with the president. The first one, uh, as you're suggesting, sort of saying, the gig is up here. I, you remember, Essie, on Thursday, that's when those two votes took place in yeah. the Senate. And you'll recall that the Democratic plan actually got more votes uh, than the president's plan. And, and more Republicans uh, had crossed over, not enough to actually advance that legislation, but enough to be a clear signal to Mitch McConnell, in addition to what he was hearing from his members, that the dam was about to break inside the Republican caucus, in the, the Republican conference in the Senate. And so he delivered that message to the president. Then apparently, according to our reporting, uh, the, the president was briefed about the pending air traffic situation that you just mentioned, and that this was going to be a real problem. And that's when he said, we got to pull the plug on this. The shutdown has to come to an end. And so what about Nancy Pelosi and Democrats? Any indication yet as to what they're planning to do over the next three weeks? Well, you'll recall uh, one of the things that Nancy Pelosi did successfully here throughout these 35 days of some I, it just like boggles the mind, meaningless shutdown <laughs> because the president didn't get what he wanted Anything. here. But you'll recall <laughs> that Nancy Pelosi kept her caucus completely unified on the message that we will not start negotiating until the government is open. And there were right. some Democrats in her caucus, Essie, that were getting nervous about that because they also saw how frustrated the country was becoming uh, with the shutdown. But she said, there is a plan here. Let's just get the government open. So that one for her. Now comes that part where she said, then we'll talk. She was yeah. asked very specifically yesterday if indeed in three weeks they're going to pass a, a 
DHS funding bill that will have wall money. She didn't say no. She said, have I not made my position on the wall clear? We know she's not in favor of it, but it certainly seems a, a lot of Democrats talked about in advance of the government opening some plan to get $5 billion of border security, not wall funding, but more border security into this bill uh, to make it perhaps enticing to President Trump to sign. Uh, it sounds like perhaps that's where Democrats are, are heading in these negotiations. Wow. Uh, the next three weeks are going to be really, really fascinating to watch. David Chalian, thanks so yeah. much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Okay, so now what? Well, the clock is ticking. We have 20 days, 20 days until America faces another possible shutdown or maybe even a national emergency. 20 days to hope some kind of deal can be reached. But also, and maybe even more alarmingly, 20 days to find out if President Trump can learn how to govern. That's a crash course for sure, but that's essentially where we're at. Can Trump figure out how not to repeat his past mistakes? Too sweet. Or will he just wait for Nancy Pelosi to, you know, back the car up and, and run over him again? Here's the deal. We just learned that without Republicans' total control of Congress to bolster Trump's unpopular policies and weaken his checks on his authority, he's little more than an empty suit. The moment Democrats took control of the House, he was proven utterly ineffective, powerless to bend Democrats and Senate Republicans or lagging poll numbers to his whim. His powers of persuasion and his tweets, his idle threats, none of it was enough, of course, to move Democrats. By shutting down the government, Trump finally got the lesson he never had to learn in his first two years in office. The executive and the legislative branches of government must work together. Trump thought he stood on an island of executive authority and Republicans often let him. He should have been, in that time, building coalitions in Congress, finding out where the pockets of support and areas of compromise were, laying out a clear agenda that Republican leadership could trust would be there if they backed it. And then listening to the American people instead of only Fox News between the hours of 6 to 9 in the morning and 8 to 11 at night. Now, to be fair, other presidents have found coalition building in Congress difficult. LBJ, Bill Clinton were masters at it. Nixon and Obama, not so much. But that's the job. And Republicans did Trump no favors in allowing him to skip out on this essential lesson in governing. And Pelosi just schooled him in it. So President Trump now has 20 days to learn how to be president. I, for one, am rooting for him. All right. To help me look at what the next three weeks may bring, let me bring in my guest, CNN political analysts, Republican strategist Alice Stewart and former comms director for the Clinton White House, Joe Lockhart. Joe, I start with you, your boss, Bill Clinton, yep. knew how to build these coalitions, famously worked with Newt Gingrich across the aisle on numerous significant pieces of legislation. Sometimes, um, you know, to the uh, detriment of Democrats, but he did it. Can Trump and Democrats in Congress work together or are both sides sort of too entrenched? Well, in theory, they can. And, and I think you're right, President Clinton. One of our most productive legislative years was 1996 divided. during a re-election. Yeah. It was a divided Congress. We did uh, some health care. We did we raised the minimum wage. Right. So it can be done. A couple of things have to happen, though. 
Uh, Trump has to stop thinking about I only govern for my base is one. Yeah. The rest of the country doesn't matter. Yeah. That's 65 percent of the country yep. that he has excluded from governing from governing. He's also got they've also got to build some trust. Mm. Um, they, and what, Trump uh, and Democrats. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think it, and, and Trump and Republicans. I mean, mm. he pulled the rug out of Republicans he, 35 yes. days ago. Yes. And the third thing, and, and I think this is the most important. He's got to start. He's got to start dealing in real facts, uh -huh. not pretend. Mm. He keeps talking about emergencies that aren't emergencies, mm. and it makes it very difficult for Democrats. You know, for instance, if you listen to him yesterday, the messaging makes no sense. If this was indeed a national emergency, well, why didn't he declare it mm -hmm. and use the powers that he says he has? No, he's sitting on it. Right. You don't sit on an emergency. And there isn't. Right. There is not an emergency at the border. Alice, do you think that Trump learned? the right lessons from the past 35 days. We will find that out in the next 20 days, yeah. without a doubt. And I think there are several things here. The, the fallout from this, we had his hard base and the left say he caved. Conservatives and Republicans say he compromised. The president in the White House says this was an opportunity, an opportunity for them to learn if Democrats are serious about border security. The next well, 20 days, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, right. And so this is his time. Yeah. This is his time to, to demonstrate that. And I agree with mm -hmm. you. He's supposed to be the, the deal maker, and a shutdown yeah. with nothing to show for it is probably not a chapter in the art of the deal. And what we're going to have here, first of all, this week will be like Groundhog Day. Republicans and Democrats will sit down in Washington. The Republicans will. We'll say we want 5.7 billion. We'll give you uh, protections for DACA yeah. and TPS, and uh, a few of these other yeah. uh, things they threw in there, carrots they threw in there. And Democrats will say no. Um, we can't have that. They have to realize they have to have a conversation to move this down. The what field. will Democrats do? Will they negotiate? Yeah, I think they will, but I think they'll negotiate on border security. I, it's one of those issues that there's been a bipartisan consensus on for a long time. There is not a consensus on immigration reform, on amnesty, on pathway. Right. To, but if you look at border security and the funding for it, it has steadily gone up under Republican presidents, Republican Congress, and the same with Democrats. So there is a consensus. What there isn't a consensus that what Trump has done is he's made this wall, this seat assigning chain wall, a litmus test on what America is about. And he's basically trying to convince people that we're a country that has to keep everyone out, that doesn't want to trade with their trading partners, that doesn't want to participate in our alliances. And the Democrats have said no. And it's not so much they've said no. The public, this, this election in 2018 yeah. was about immigration. Well, Alice, to, and, and, it, and it was a landslide for Democrats. To this point, to Joe's point, I, I consider myself a border hawk. Right. I want strong borders. Right. I think we need to make illegal immigration harder and legal immigration a little easier. Right. But there's this what I call like a wall porn crowd. People like Ann Coulter and Steve King who almost seem to have like a sexual fetish for a <laughs> cement A big, wall, beautiful wall. A big, beautiful uh, erection of a wall. Um, no pun intended. Or maybe a little intended. Yeah, a little. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think the majority of Americans are that zealous about the wall. I think they want stronger borders and maybe even border fencing in some places. But Trump seems to govern for an audience of like one or two. Would it serve him? 
to stop listening to Ann Coulter and start listening more to voters. It absolutely would. And his base right now, even though they're frustrated, he's going to continue to hold on to that 35 percent if we make progress on this. But, but right. the problem is, let's find where we agree. Seventy percent of Americans agree on protections for dreamers. And that's something, hey, right. let's put this on the table. That is non-negotiable. We can all agree on that. And then work on securing the border. The yeah. president has been, I think it's advisable to also include humanitarian aid. Let's look at drug detection equipment along the border, putting yeah. more boots on the ground, drones in the air. Cameras, not right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And not just the border wall, because just the wall itself is off-putting for Democrats, even though they supported the Safe Fence Act in 2006, yeah. which was virtually the same thing. The difference is this has Trump's name on it, and they don't want anything to do with I think that's that. really smart, Alice. I hope the president gives you a ring now and then. That's oh, my phone is here. I think you should take it. Uh, Alice, Joe, thanks so much. Thanks. Great conversation. Okay, so now the government has reopened. Will Pelosi stick to her promise and negotiate with Trump? I'll ask a Democratic congressman next. And coming up, Roger Stone shows no sign of flipping on Trump. Could that change? The president's announcement on Friday that he would sign legislation reopening the government was a sure sign Nancy Pelosi and Democrats won this battle. But have they won the war yet? Well, that's unclear. Joining me for some perspective on what the next 20 days may look like on Capitol Hill is Democratic Congressman from Michigan, Dan Kildee. Welcome. Thank you. Okay, so Nancy Pelosi promised she would not negotiate border security while the government was shut down. She won that battle. Trump is reopening the government for 20 more days. So now Democrats will come and negotiate, right? Absolutely. I mean, we'll use the process that we ought to use, and that's a conference committee. Those conferees are being appointed. It'll be a negotiation, and I'm looking yeah. forward to that. So I want to read you some reporting from the Washington Post today, which I think illustrates part of what the White House is thinking when it agreed to reopen the government yesterday. I want to get your reaction. Aides say, this is in quotes, Trump was willing to table debate over wall funding because he is convinced he can win support from some Democratic lawmakers over the next three weeks. A senior White House official said the administration's negotiating team has received dozens of signals from Democrats that they are willing to give the president wall money, but declined to name any such lawmakers. Congressman, is there an appetite among enough Democrats for wall money? You know, as well as I do, Nancy Pelosi said Trump will not get a wall. Well, he's not going to get the wall that he talks about all the time. Will we support border security that's based on what real border experts think we need to have? Oh, absolutely. But I think it has to be based on facts. There's the president yeah. and some around him have, as I think you were saying in the previous segment, this sort of weird obsession about this big concrete edifice. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, on one hand, I understand it. You know, he, he chanted about this during his campaign. He feels like well, he has to Well, and it's a simple through. visual. You know, it's a visual yeah. that works. Yeah. But what's, what's really damaging about this, uh, look, I have, I have friends who have lost kids to opioids. Don't tell those families. This is what the president's doing. Don't yeah. tell those families that building a wall is going to stop those terrible mm. deaths from occurring. That's not going to stop it. And we have ideas that we'd like to put forward that would help, that would stop some of those drugs from coming across this border. We want border security. We just don't want to be stupid about it. We don't want a cartoon to border security. We want real effective border security. And so in this debate, in this negotiation, 
yeah. which will be based on facts. I hope, you know, if there are places where it makes sense for us to put up physical barriers because that's what will help, let's do it. Okay. But let's do the things that actually uh, will, will, will help us, will make us more safe, and hopefully in the mix, also talk about some common sense improvements to our immigration system. Do you think that Trump is just stalling to get his national emergency, or do you think he'll be a willing player at the negotiating table over the next 20 days? I have a hard time believing him when he says he's going to declare a national emergency, but who knows, because we, nobody knows what Donald Trump's going to do. Huh. But this is a guy who is in love with his unilateral authority. I mean, look at how he's used his unilateral authority on tariffs. If he believes he has the authority to do something, I suspect he would have done it a long time ago. Um, before we go, I just want to get your comment on another development in Congress uh, that sort of got buried this week. Um, your colleague in the House, Sheila Jackson Lee, she resigned as chairwoman from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation and chair of a House Judiciary Subcommittee over allegations that she fired a staffer for reporting a rape accusation uh, against a CBC Foundation employer. I bring this up with you because you co-sponsored legislation in 2017 requiring mandatory sexual harassment training for members of Congress and congressional staff, um, legislation that I support. And you said at the time, I hope that this vote is only the first step. Additional reforms are badly needed to promote transparency and protect victims of sexual harassment. I know you really believe in that. Um, is stepping down from her leadership roles sufficient enough for response by Sheila Jackson Lee? Well, I think it was the right thing for her to do at this time. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, all of this took place during a time when most of our attention was focused on this other issue. Right. I think it's important that we get the facts and that uh, Congresswoman uh, Jackson Lee uh, take appropriate steps. I do think it was appropriate for her to send the message that she takes this matter very seriously by stepping down from those two important roles. Now we need to get more information to see if it uh, is a situation that requires anything further. But obviously, it's a tragic situation and uh, we need to treat it that way. Congressman Kildee, thanks so much for coming on, for answering my questions, and uh, we'll see you next time, I'm sure. All right. Thanks, Essie. Thanks. Okay, next. Will he pull a Michael Cohen and flip, or will Roger Stone stay rock solid for Team Trump? And it's already time to break down the 2020 Democratic field. I'll do it with one of the candidates. Well, here's some fake news fodder for the Trump White House. British newspaper The Telegraph issued an apology to First Lady Melania Trump for an article which included a number of false statements about her and her family. The article titled The Mystery of Melania has been pulled from the site. Here are but a few of the retractions and corrections laid out in The Telegraph's apology. Mrs. Trump's father was not a fearsome presence and did not control the family. Mrs. Trump was not struggling in her modeling career before she met Mr. Trump, and she did not advance in her career due to the assistance of Mr. Trump. The claim that Mrs. Trump cried on election night is also false, okay? The Telegraph also agreed to pay, quote, substantial damages and Mrs. Trump's legal costs. At least one Trump is winning this week. We'll be back in two minutes. In the Red File tonight, Roger Stone, it's a name you may have been hearing a bit about lately. He was arrested during a pre-dawn raid at his Florida home and released on a quarter of a million dollars bond yesterday afternoon. Now, most people in his shoes might want to spend the evening huddling with their legal team to determine how to defend against the seven 
felony charges brought by special counsel Robert Mueller, which include one count of obstruction, five counts of false statements, and one count of witness tampering, all tied to his testimony to the House Intelligence Committee about his involvement with the WikiLeaks dumps of stolen DNC emails during the 2016 campaign. Roger Stone, however, is not most people. He instead went on a mini media tour, speaking with Fox News naturally, as well as with our own Chris Cuomo last night. So there's a 100% chance in your mind that nobody can offer any compelling, credible proof that Donald Trump knew about your efforts to get to WikiLeaks. Uh, nobody can supply any corroborated truth. People can can have their testimony uh, composed, particularly if they're looking for a reduction in their sentence. But there's no there is no proof here. People can lie seems like an odd defense to lying. But let me bring in CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti to answer that question. Renato, Roger Stone often seems like a sideshow, and I think he likes it that way. Um, he posted this image to Instagram earlier showing sort of a, a nothing burger. But does this Mueller indictment, which, as I said, is about lying, does it bring us any closer to the idea that members of the Trump campaign colluded with Russia, Russians to influence the outcome of the 2016 election, or is this sort of tangential to that? Well, I wouldn't say it's tangential. Uh, the assertions that underlie these charges are that Roger Stone was in contact with senior officials within the Trump campaign, and was at the same, and he was telling them about his efforts to coordinate uh, with WikiLeaks and to find out what they were doing, et cetera. And they were encouraging him in those efforts, and at times trying to, uh, you know, find out about what he was doing, and so on and so forth. You know, I, look, that that is at the very least uh, highly unusual and concerning, right? So, if for example, if um, you know, if somebody was found knew, you know, learned of the fact that you know Bernie Madoff was ripping off people with the Ponzi scheme, and their reaction was, well, you know what, I'm going to find out more about what Bernie Madoff is doing. I'm going to talk to him about it. I'm going to try to see if I can influence him and make the Ponzi scheme better or different. That's a weird thing to do. It's something that we'd all condemn. Mm -hmm. So I think at the very least, it's concerning. The question mm -hmm. is, do, is there enough proof that it's criminal? So one of the most eyebrow-raising sections of the indictment is this, quote, a senior Trump official, Trump campaign official, was directed to contact Stone about any additional releases. The indictment does not say who the official was or who did the directing, but it's very specific on that point, and people are sort of latching on to that. What do you make of it? Well, it's clear to me that Robert Mueller was trying to what, what we would call as prosecutors right around uh, the the uh, the problem of having to identify who was doing the directing there. And that suggests to me that it's someone that he did not want to identify even mm -hmm. by category. So it could have been the candidate, Trump. It could have been a family member. You know, that would have caused quite a stir. Could have been a, a Russian intelligence person. I, I don't know for sure, but it's going to be somebody in a category that would have generated a lot of attention that would have been unnecessary uh, at this stage at this stage in the proceedings. So President Trump tweeted this morning uh, about about Roger Stone. He said if Roger Stone was indicted for lying to Congress, what about the lying done by Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Lisa Page 
and lover Baker and so many others. What about Hillary to FBI and her 33,000 deleted emails? What about Lisa and Peter's deleted texts and Wiener's laptop? Much more. In my mind, it sounds like Trump is implying here that Roger Stone also lied. Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, that if in the beginning makes no sense because obviously Stone was charged. I don't think anyone disputes that. And the rest of this stuff is just him bringing up either matters that already were investigated, like uh, Hillary's emails, or, you know, just conspiracy theories or allegations for which there's no support. It's unclear to me, uh, for example, that there's any support for uh, the fact that, you know, the idea that James Comey committed a crime, uh, that strikes me just uh, conspiracy theory or innuendo. It's just weird to put Roger Stone, a man he's defending, with lumped in with the same category of people he's calling a liar and saying, well, what, but what about them? But uh, far be it for me to get into mm. Trump's, Trump's Twitter psyche. Huh. Uh, Renato, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, up next, a look ahead at 2020 strategies, and I'll sit down with an early Democratic contender. 2020 Democratic field replaced one candidate with another this week. Richard Ojeda, former West Virginia state senator, he dropped out, saying he couldn't in good conscience ask people to continue donating to a campaign that's probably not going to get off the ground. Meanwhile, on Monday, California Senator Kamala Harris announced her candidacy for president of the United States. Harris made her first stop on the presidential campaign trail last night in Columbia, South Carolina, at the city's annual Pink Ice Gala. She's set to follow up her South Carolina stop with a primetime town hall in Iowa on Monday, hosted by CNN's Jake Tapper. Now, Harris wasn't the only presidential hopeful in the Palmetto State this week. South Carolina also played host to Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, and Bernie Sanders. While South Carolina is the fourth primary state behind Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, it's playing an outsized role in the 2020 presidential race, due in part to the fact that it's the first early state primary with a very large African-American population. That's a critical voting block for any Democratic candidate. For more on the latest additions to the Democratic field and the role of South Carolina in the 2020 election, I want to bring in CNN political commentator and former Democratic member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, Mr. South Carolina himself, Bakari Sellers. <laughs> okay, so Bakari, um, Columbia Mayor Steve Benjamin said on Monday, the road to the White House starts in South Carolina. Not sure Iowa and New Hampshire appreciate that, but okay. David Plouffe, former President Obama's 2008 campaign manager, recently called the state the gateway to the nomination. So what about the current political climate makes South Carolina so critical for Democrats right now? Well, if you're going to win the Democratic primary, it's a must that you come to South Carolina and not just perform well, but you have to win South Carolina. It's the first primary state that has a demographic that looks like uh, the rest of the Democratic primary. That is a majority African-American voting base. Yeah. Um, and I always tell people, Essie, that the, the person who wins the Democratic nomination has to get the vote of my mama and her friends. That means <laughs> that you have to have African-American women come out in large swaths and support you and that's this is the first state where you get to test that that's why we're going to have all of these visitors come through from of course this week elizabeth warren and cory booker and kamala harris to all of those who have yet to announce but you have to plant a flag in south carolina and it's a cheap state to win it just takes time hmm. so kamala harris has been criticized um, from some on the left for her record as a former prosecutor and in this era of criminal justice reform, do you think that might derail her chances with South Carolina voters um, or even nationally? Not at all. I mean, I, I think that 
Senator Harris is going to have to answer some questions about her record. But when you peel back her record and you look at the fact uh, that she led the country in some of the innovation with offender reentry programs, uh, making sure that they didn't just have a door of recidivism in California. If you look at her record on the local city, uh, local state and, and, uh, and federal level as a prosecutor, you will see that she did some things that were progressive. You will see that she did some things that during the time of lock them up during the uh, 90s and 2000s, yeah. she was at the she was she was at the front of the line and making sure uh, mm -hmm. Uh, that we had fairness in our criminal justice system. So, yes, she's going to have to answer those questions, but right. I'm pretty sure she can answer those questions soundly. And her work as a United States senator uh, has to be calculated as well because she and Senator Booker, to give him credit, are in the forefront of criminal justice reform. Uh, okay, lastly, Bernie Sanders. He is reportedly announcing his intention to run imminently. You've been critical of him in the past, saying, for example, in 2016, that he isn't best for black voters. Um, he could earn a sizable following like he did in 2016. Do you think he shouldn't run for the good of the party? No, no, no. I, I, I think everyone should run. Um, it, it, if you're going to run in the Democratic primary, I want everyone and their mom to run. Please do. Uh, <laughs> I have a problem with people like Howard Schultz I, who get your wants wish. to run as a... <laughs> I know, I'm going to have 30 of them, right? Uh, yeah. But I, I have a problem with people like Howard Schultz, uh, the CEO of Starbucks, who wants to run as an independent. I think that's totally different. But if Bernie Sanders wants right. to run, that's fine. I think Elizabeth Warren has enveloped his lane. I think he, hmm. Bernie Sanders is going to have a more difficult time this time around than he did in 2016. Uh, but I, I, I want people to understand that the way that Kamala Harris rolled out this week from Good Morning America to South Carolina, then Oakland, then Iowa, uh, was a perfect rollout. And we look hmm. forward to seeing who else can have a rollout this stands up to that. Bakari Sellers, I know you've had an eventful month or two. I hope you're getting some sleep. You know I'm what I mean? I'm going to take a nap. These twins are just wearing me out. I'm going <laughs> to take a nap. <laughs> All right. got to come back soon after you've gotten some rest. <laughs> Thank right. you. Okay. For more on the expanding Democratic field, let me turn to someone who's actually in it, former Democratic Congressman from Maryland, John Delaney. Welcome. Thanks for having me, I see. Okay, so there's an incredibly diverse, uh, diverse field mm -hmm. of candidates already in. Yes. More coming. Yeah. Um, how are you going to stand out in the crowd? Well, first of all, I'm more moderate. Okay. Which I don't think is a dirty word, right? Even though some Nor people. Or do I? Yes. Some people tell you that. I'm focused on solutions. I think what the American people are looking for is someone to solve problems and actually start getting things done, yeah. as opposed to just talking about the things. I believe the central issue facing this country is how divided we are. Mm. So I'm running as a unifier mm -hmm. to restore a sense of kind of common purpose to this American experience, restore a sense of almost moral aspiration mm. for who we are as a people. And I'm focused on the future. I think the world is changing so fast because of technology and all these very powerful forces. Mm. And I have a vision for what that future can be if we build it together. You know, uh, I have a list of questions here. I'm uh, I'm just going to I'm going to put them aside because you just said something really interesting. That sounded to me like John Kasich's pitch in 2016 running as uniter. I don't know that the country had an appetite for that then. Do you think they do now? Absolutely. We've had the divider in chief. Mm -hmm. We've had someone as our president who wakes up every day and tries to divide the American people, tries to pit American against American. And I think the American people are tired of it. I mean, I've done over 300 events in Iowa, New Hampshire alone. Yeah. And when you talk to hardworking Americans, yeah. what they want us to do is solve problems. Mm -hmm. They want us to get things done. They want us to stop talking about this stuff. Right. All this stuff that gets covered all the time, Roger Stone and all this stuff. Yeah. They don't care about that. Uh -huh. They care about what we're going to do to improve their lives. Yeah. Like, what is our plan to actually improve their lives? They also want to believe in the country again. They want to believe in their government 
it'll allow them to believe in themselves. So I think they want someone to restore, I call it this notion of common purpose, mm -hmm. that we are actually all in this together. Mm -hmm. And if we work together, yeah. we can solve all of these problems. I think, you know, sometimes you get the impression, maybe by watching shows like mine, that, you know, people are angry and they're entrenched and they're on the far extremes right. of the right and the left. You say not so. Well, there, there is some of that. There's yeah. no question. I mean, this is a big, diverse, amazing country and people have all kinds of different perspectives. Yeah. But I do believe, right, what I'm running on is what most Americans are looking for. Mm. Right. I think what most Americans are looking for is not fighting, but solutions. Mm -hmm. They want us to make progress. Mm -hmm. So, right? That's where I think most of the country is. Yeah, I think, you know... They call it the silent majority, but I think it's yeah. true. No, no, no. I, it's I, kind of a center-left or center-right. I mean, people talk about red districts, blue districts, or purple yeah. districts. The United States of America is a, is a giant purple country. Look, there are a lot of people in your party, a lot of folks on the left, who still think it is a woman's turn to be president of the United States. Now, the voters will get to decide that. How do you plan on sort of responding to that? I mean, look, the voters do get to decide that. Yeah. I mean, I'm the father of four daughters, mm -hmm. right? So I care about this. issue, And we should have had a woman as our president mm. at this point, right? But, I mean, I think people are going to make a decision based on the person, the human being, yeah. right? Based on what's in their heart and what's in their head. Mm -hmm. And what are their plans to get us into a different place? Yeah. They don't want a divider. They want a unifier. Mm -hmm. They don't want someone to keep talking about things. They want them to solve problems, find that common ground. All the great things we've ever done. You know this, Essie. Mm -hmm. As a country, whether it's Medicare, Social Security, putting someone on the moon, it all happened on a bipartisan basis, right. when people found common ground and they shared a dream. Look, that's this, what they're looking for. This message appeals to me. Believe me, I I hope I hope it's true. I hope that there is an appetite for this. But I really appreciate you coming Thanks on for having the me. program. I hope you come on again because I'd like to hear more of your ideas. Great, uh, Congressman. John Delaney. The 2020 season is just getting started, and on Monday, it's the first major TV event of the race when Senator Kamala Harris joins Jake Tapper for a CNN town hall live from Iowa. That's Monday night, 10 Eastern here on CNN. We'll be right back. Two competing presidents, two dozen deaths, two superpowers squaring up and a democracy in the balance. The crisis in Venezuela reached a tipping point this week, leading Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to give this ultimatum at the U.N. today. Now it's time for every other nation to pick a side. No more delays, no more games. Either you stand with the forces of freedom or you're in league with Maduro and his mayhem. Okay, let's back up for a minute and get you up to speed here. President Nicolas Maduro won re-election in May in a vote that America and much of the international community called fraudulent. After massive protests this week, opposition lawmaker Juan Guaido declared himself acting president, immediately garnering the support of President Trump. The U.S. and the E.U. have called for a free and fair new election, with several European officials putting the deadline at eight days. Joining the U.S. and backing Guaido in the absence of a new vote are about a dozen countries in the region, plus the U.K., Canada, and the E.U. Maduro, meanwhile, still enjoys the support of Russia, China, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. So how did this become an international standoff, and what happens next? Joining me to discuss is former U.S. ambassador to Venezuela under Bush and Obama, Patrick Duddy. Um, ambassador, the president has been pulling America back from the international stage. So why do you think he jumped into this situation so quickly? And do you think that that was the right thing to do? 
Uh, good evening. And yes, it was the right thing to do. Uh, the situation in uh, Venezuela is an unmitigated disaster. And it is not only imposing great suffering and hardship on the Venezuelan people, but is uh, beginning to be a serious disruption for the, for the entire region. Three million Venezuelans have fled the country. Yeah. And taking care of this wave of refugees is taxing support services um, all over the region. Yeah. So Secretary Pompeo earlier wouldn't specify the next steps for the U.S., but re realistically, what options might the White House be considering in terms of backing Guaido? Well, I think the most useful thing that um, we can encourage and um, others as well going forward would be the redirection of resources um, uh, per, perhaps from oil sales and, and other international activity away from um, the now de facto president, uh, Nicolas Maduro, and to the new um, constitutionally um, uh, recognized president, uh, Juan Guaido. So you mentioned um, Russia is deeply invested in the Maduro regime to the tune of some $25 billion. What lengths will Putin go to to secure his investment, do you think? Well, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. But I, I, I think um, there are a number of ways to look at it. First of all, uh, Venezuela has been a, a, a client for arms sales for the Russians for a very long time. And more recently, they've become involved in the petroleum sector. Yeah. China is, in fact, the largest, uh, the largest creditor for Venezuela. I don't think that um, we should be surprised at their objections to U.S. policy or to the, um, the fall from grace for, with the rest of the hemisphere that the Maduro regime has, has experienced. But I don't think there's very much they can do about it. Now, the symbolic um, dispatching of two bombers to uh, Venezuela right. a month or two ago um, got a lot of attention. Um, yeah. But it was it's still essentially uh, symbolic. Nearly all of the major countries in the region understand that the situation internally in Venezuela is simply unsustainable. Yeah. Um, objections from the Russians really are um, simply a, an effort to protect their, um, their economic interests. So you were the ambassador when Hugo Chavez was president. You've seen up close how this regi regime uh, seems to have nine lives. Do you think that Maduro will weather this or do you think he'll step down and and maybe flee? Well, there are no guarantees, but I think things have changed both internally and externally. You know, there have been two major waves of demonstrations, 2014, yeah. um, 2017. Yeah. Those essentially, um, uh, that m momentum dissipated basically because there was um, no single mm. uh, leader around which the, um, the multitudes yeah. could rally and also because there was no international support. Now they're um, yeah. both. Good. Thank you so much. I have to go. I'm very sorry to cut you off, Ambassador Duddy. Thanks so much for your insight. Uh, I really appreciate it. That's it for us tonight. Up next, Van Jones asks Senator Sherrod Brown if he's running in 2020. Plus, he talks to Meghan McCain about continuing her father's political fight. Don't go anywhere. The Van Jones Show is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.